Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Dun, dun, dun. Podcast. Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know. I have a great surprise for you today. This is Father Mike. And wait, wait. All right, here, this is for the hardcore listeners. You have to see if you can spot that voice. All right, why don't you say, on the count of three, you can say, the Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I shall want. One, two, three. The Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I shall want. <laughs> Did you get it, audience? It's a child that's here with you. <laughs> <laughs> nope, here he is. He's back from Cali. He's got a good tan. Yep. He's got surf, surfer hair with the wind through his... Oh. Yeah, <laughs> back for just a couple hours, unfortunately, or, or a couple days, really. But I'm only in Denver for a couple days. We got Olo in the house, yeah, Father. It's good to be back. Mostly he, because of you, Mikey. It's good to see oh, you. Oh, come on, that's nice. It is good to see you, brother. Yeah, I've missed you. I when I get um, kind of bummed about boredom of life and the weather going cold, I dream of. <laughs> uh, Wish they all could be California. Oh, no, that's about the girls. Yeah, <laughs> the, the valley in in, uh, in California. I've realized that I live in the valley and in Sherman Oaks, and it is it gets hot because it's like you don't get the winds from the coast because the mountains are between us. I mean, I can be I can be at the beach in 20 minutes, but I start to go over the mountains to get there. And so if you're in the L.A. basin, like the weather's just perfect, especially near the coast. But as soon as you get into the valley, it gets roasting hot. Oh, really? It's just like maybe... Three, four days. Here. What are they call that? <laughs> Death Valley. Uh, Death Valley is further inland. Um, so yeah, I think the hottest place. What is the hottest place in the world? Sometimes is Death Valley in California. Ooh. So it's when you get closer to the um, to the Nevada border. That's so wild. Hotter than the Sahara Desert. It is in certain places of it, you know. But yeah, it gets. They have this. If you're driving from L.A. to Vegas, you drive through this little tiny town where there's they, have, they call it the world's largest thermometer. It's just this big digital thing. Wow, I forget the name of the town, but they have this massive thing. So you drive up, and I always compare it. And I'm kind of surprised because they have the the temperature, and it's almost. If you're driving there in the summer, it goes up like. 130, 140 Ooh, degrees on the, on the thermometer. It's usually around like 110, 115. But I drove through there, yeah, during the summer, and it was it was 114 degrees for like wow. most of my drive. I get so nervous driving through there because I'm like, what if you broke down? Oh, what yeah. if your car overheats? What if there's and there's long stretches between yep. where you're going to see a gas station or people? I thought of that exact thing. Um, I was driving to I must have driven to Vegas or Denver or something like that, and I. There was something with my car, and I forget what it was right now, but I, I had a, oh, I, I think I just hadn't had the oil changed in way too long. Yeah. And I just thought, man, if something goes wrong here, that's going to be bad, like really bad. And so our Lord took care of me, but yeah, it was it was scary for a bit. All right, two things. I'm going to turn this off okay, and then re-hit it with the sound. For some reason, I turned down the sound, and now the wave oh. is really low, so I'm nervous about that, but I'm going to adjust it okay. here. And so I'm going to break, and then it'll come back. Also, uh, pull the microphone a little closer. Oh, all right. All right, we're back on. Um, Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Do you remember this part? Constant technical difficulties. (laughs) Father Michael has a much better podcast um, that Uh, is dependable (laughs) when it comes to sound and (laughs) levels. Well, we actually do two different ways. So when we, uh, Mother Natalia and I usually use uh, Squadcast, which is like, we're both, she's in Ohio, I'm in LA, so it's all online, but they handle everything. Like they handle the the fluctuations in the voice, they even it out, they'll record both of us separately so that it, you know, even if we're like, we're off sync, it comes out much better than we even hear each other. So it's, a, I have a little recorder from when we're in person that you just, it's like one button, little adjustments for volume, that's it. It's just, the, this whole... What do you mean We... I mean, uh, they 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 I, record uh, us differently. Cast, this so is it's, it's all online. Oh, so it's 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 one of those things where I jump on is it's like Zoom, but it's recorded. Do you um, have separate mics that they're we recording from? Yeah, and is it their box? No, we we have our own. The, 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 it's all online, so they do everything. Okay. They do everything online. I mean, I, I, I it's like it's like uh, someone that doesn't know tech talk about the cloud. Like I save things in the cloud. What does that mean? I have no idea. What okay, I mean. I well, no that's idea. probably. It's probably best because we're nerding out now on right. sound. <laughs> Somehow it works where, where Squadcast just handles all of that. And then we, we literally upload it to Buzzsprout, and Buzzsprout sends it to the world. 
So and as I, there's so that little sounds so easy that, that we, we are about. cavemen who carry clubs <laughs> and grunt. I'll say this soundboard uh, here. This looks like something like I that, know. You know, 90s rappers was, using to, to make CDs. You know what? 90s rap was pretty good. <laughs> uh, was. You know what I love hearing is Mother Natalia. That's weird. I know. So tell me how that works because Mother in our in our convents means you're the head of the head of yeah. the crowd. Yeah. So I, I do a podcast called What God Is Not with a girl I've known for 11 years. I mm. met her when she was in college when I was here in Denver. Um, uh, I'm not supposed to be saying her former name. I guess that's a that's just kind okay. of a fun no-no. Um, so she was Sister Natalia through her years of formation, six years of formation, and now she's Mother Natalia. So in the East, um, is the same thing with Father. You don't. We call all monks fathers. So if if you have oh, dedicated your life to the that's church, interesting, so, yeah. it's very much a role. It's not like a title you get because of seminary. It's a role. So every monk is called father because he's a father for the whole church. Every nun, when she makes final profession, life profession, they call it, is now a mother. So everybody calls the mother and everybody calls every monk father. And so a priest is just has is the father of a parish, but it's actually, and you're a priest for the whole world, of course, for the whole church, but even more so, the monastics are, are very much spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, so we give them that title. I mean, you call them all mother once they make their life profession. Wow. Do people come, um, there's that movie, uh, what is it called, The Island? You know yes. that one? Ostrov, the, the, yes. the Russian one, yeah. Uh, it's fantastic, but it makes me think of like people come to the monasteries to get advice yes. and to get direction, and we don't really have that. Uh, Gobes talked about in his last podcast, um, going to the monastery to ask for prayers, yeah. but it's very unusual, and we made that point. It's like, hey, people go. Right. You need to go to the monasteries, but we just don't have the same tradition of like, go seeking counsel. Go, you know, yeah. But I don't know if that, I mean, it just intuitively makes me think of that when I hear mother. It's, it's true, but also that practically there aren't a lot of monasteries anymore. I mean, mm. if, you, if you read Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, like you hear about in, in kind of the high point of, of the faith in Russia, um, there was a monastery outside of almost every major town. So mm. it, like going to the monastery was like going to your parish. You, you could go to your parish for all the public sacraments of the monastery for all the private ones, but, but that's where you went. So you, you had a spiritual mother, spiritual father, and they were not your pastor. You know, oh, you went there yeah. for you went there for anything private, like spiritual direction, confession. You always went to the monasteries. We just don't have them anymore. We don't have the number of vocations. We don't have the availability of monasteries. Um, that's just not accessible. Hmm. Um, we might call that something like an oratory, like the comeback of city yeah. monasteries. Now we don't have those everywhere, right. but it's kind of developing, I think, in the the American church. Yeah, we're, we're adapting. But one of the things also to realize, and I've, I've shared this on my own podcast a little bit, but my new podcast, but. Um, we have this idea, and it's it's a very interesting to think about with these titles. But we have this idea that everybody who goes to a monastery like achieves the heights of holiness, and they're all these, you know, kind of gurus that you can go mm. and ask for anything. Whereas a monastery, especially in Eastern Catholic tradition, Eastern Christian tradition, there are places where you go if you're a complete mess, yeah. and like you 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 may never get better. Like, like as far as what people can see on the service, you may never be able to guide souls. You go there primarily for your own soul. And if God decides to heal you enough and to give you the gift of, of pastoring, the gift of shepherding, then people go to you for spiritual direction. But you, can't, you don't just walk up to any monk or nun and go, hey, can you guide me? Because they're like, no, I'm a mess. Like I'm here yeah. because I, I, I need what this place offers. Um, so it's a halfway house. <laughs> you know, halfway house heaven, of really. like, yeah, yeah, halfway house is like when you get out of jail, yeah. but you're not ready for society yeah. or... You just got out of drug rehab, and they you're kind of yeah easing back in, or you're on parole, and yeah you, you halfway need guidance, between you need structure, yeah, earth absolutely. and heaven. That's I love I love that, and I've always loved about the monasteries that when they're strong, and you have a stability, they can take on yes. a lot of. You'll find brothers, yes, who are not yeah they're not expected to be priests. They don't want to. They don't need to. It's not the exception. Sometimes in our saints. There's like that guy who was the porter, who was mm-hmm. a fantastic brother, and he's now a saint. It's like, well, in reality, at the monasteries, a lot of guys are not priests. They work, yep. sometimes very simple people, yep. and pray, you know. And there's, that's not to say they're not saints. They're just not kind of all-stars or whatever. They're and, not guides. I mean, this is the same thing we, we've heard kind of in our, in our walk through the companions, that 
back in the day when we had plenty of vocations, most men were not expected to be pastors. Most diocesan priests were not. Like you, you'd have a house of of you know three to five priests, and only one of them was the pastor. And there were a lot of guys that were like, "I don't think I'm ever called to be pastor." I'm like amazing. God has given me the gift of hearing good confessions. He's given me the gift of being a good porter. He's given me the gift of praying. But only those who were given the gift of governance in a very real way that that was perceivable by those around them, they would be the ones to to actually administer a parish. It was not expected like it is most of the time nowadays in most dioceses yeah. and eparchies. If you're getting ordained, you're gonna be a pastor one day. Like that that's just it I that's a dangerous thing to do because we all have such different gifts. Yeah, Saint Paul talks about it. First Corinthians, he talks about the charism. Yeah. You know, the gifts, spiritual gifts, and one of them is administration. And that, unfortunately, is kind of like a convenience, at least the way that the, this church is set up right now. We had had something of this, we had this program called Acts 29. It's like, okay, what comes next? Mm. And one of the things they tried to do is reemphasize this idea of discerning gifts. Yeah. Who, who are these? So that dioceses that need to consolidate and group parishes because of lack of priests yeah. will recognize just like you said, a kind of a model of this guy has a has a gift for administration. That does, he might not have a gift of he might not be the holiest guy. Right. He might not be the best preacher. He might not be prophetic that way. You know, there's other gifts, but this guy is a guy who's good at running the thing. Yeah. So he'll be the pastor, and then you have these other guys. Well, you know, at the end of the day, if you have tons of parishes and they're not dying, but they're just kind of stable, you need to have a pastor. So it's still like, yeah, when all of you who are listening right now send your sons to the seminary (laughs) or you go to seminary, more likely, I think, with our age group, um, yeah, we can start to use that model. (laughs) But in the meantime, you know, but the monasteries can can run like that because you have, you know, 20 monks and you only need one abbot or a few priests to... Right. Celebrate the mass and stuff like that. Yeah, you're you're there. You're there to become holy, and you definitely don't not need to be a priest to be holy. And but you need the community. You need the the honing of each other. You need the the structure, the discipline. You need the prayer, of course, the the fasting, the almsgiving, and all this tied into the encouragement and conviction of what the community offers. But I think I I don't think our I don't think our I don't want to say our generation. I don't think we emphasize humility enough nowadays because. We, we do try to be all mm. things to all people. I know we've talked about this a million times in this podcast because this is how we companions are trying to process our lives as priests. But we you don't need to be all things to all people. and it's But to be identify the gifts in others. So like, I don't mm. know when's the last time I was able to say, and now I have two priests in my parish. Thank God I have a second priest. So I can say, somebody will say to me, you know, this scripture thing or this the something from the fathers. And I will say, I can give you one-tenth of what Father Nathan can give you uh, on those two. He has studied the scriptures and the fathers much more than I have. So it would be it would be absurd for me when you can go literally knock on the office next door yeah. and have a much better answer to these things. And I, and I just say, sorry, that that's, I can, let me give you my impression of this because you came to me and then now you need to go next door and, and talk to him because he's going to give you the real answer. And we have such a wealth of resources uh, on that front is like we have tons of education and guys who are well skilled in prayer and have been dedicated to devotional life and are right. pious others guys who are yeah good at giving advice about just life and counseling and all yeah I remember um, one of my spiritual uh, fathers told me when when I was ordained and I was kind of getting ready they were sending me to Rome one told me um, well you you're not going to be a very good academic and teacher, hmm. but you'll be a good formator because yeah. you're a nice guy and you're humble or whatever. Yeah. The other guy, he told me, well, you'd be a terrible formator because oh, no. you're such a like mess and so wild, but you'll be a good teacher. Huh. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I guess you can put those together to be a good, <laughs> you know, a good example and a good teacher. Right. Yeah. Or you could see it the other way and just you're going to be disastrous at both it is interesting that they found that they saw the different gifts in you which is which you can take two different ways you can take well they both they both saw the negatives of or the the insufficiencies of both but they also both saw the positives so you can say if if i if i work on 
building up the gifts that they both see when it comes to teaching and formation, then I must have the potential to do either one. Then you kind of trust the formation, trust the bishop to put you in the place where yeah. you're actually going to thrive. So and you, they say your your gifts are usually your weaknesses. Yeah. You know, it's so related. Um, all right, so I want to get back to the monasteries because that's the topic I wanted oh, to do, cool. but not right away. Okay. First, I wanted to ask you about life advice because you're older than me. Okay. <laughs> How much older are you? I'm 43. Yeah, okay, so you're five years older than me, maybe a little less. Someone told me recently, actually like two people out of the blue, not with any setup and not knowing that somebody else had said this, were like, oh, you're coming up on a midlife crisis. Uh, midlife crisis! I don't know, I'm 38, I don't feel like that, but what is that? And is that real? Have you run into anything like that, or is it relative for every person? And yeah. I find that the midlife crisis is, for now, which I'm well in midlife um, in that sense, because I'm probably, what do they say, 80 for those who are strong, and I'm now past uh, All right, so you're thinking 40. like numerically, this is yeah. supposed to happen in the middle, middle. Yeah, no, and I guess that, that's, that's, a, that's, a false, that's a false idea. But there, there certainly is this idea of what have I always wanted to accomplish? Mm. And I think that's where the midlife crisis comes in, is, is when we, if we have a true midlife crisis, we we have ideas about control over our own life. Like, mm. here's what I want with my own life, and that has not been accomplished yet. And so there's a crisis there saying, this may not happen. And, and if we've clung to and wanted to control these certain aspects of our life, um, then we're going to have those. Like, I think, the, what are the stereotypes? Buying a motorcycle or, or buying a car, right, for men? Um, Getting or, a face tattoo, that's what I keep right. thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> that has never been on my bucket list, but the, you do. Yeah, you. <laughs> I haven't done everything I want yet. Um, so, but I mean, that, that is one thing. I actually want to get, I want to get pilgrim tattoos. So it is kind of funny because I'm always saying, I don't want to get them alone. So I'm always trying to convince people to get them with me. Uh-huh. And, um, but anyway, so like there, there is these things that I don't think I'm necessarily going to have a midlife crisis in that way because I have become very content in where God has guided me in my vocation. Now, I do think that my midlife crisis is going to come, and this is because Archbishop Shep, he's a prophet. So he was my spiritual director previously, yeah. and he said to me one time, I think I've said this before, but he said, you're, you're very good at being young. You're very good at being a young priest. But he says, I think I've continue, heard that. Yeah, you yeah, told me that. Yeah. If you continue down this road, you're going to be a very bad old priest. That was you, you're, clinging to, you're clinging to your zeal. You're clinging to your energy. You're clinging to the way you look. Like you're, you're, you're engaging the world as a zealous young person. All the older people go, oh, look, isn't that cute? Like, look how much zeal he yeah. has, how much energy he has. But, but if that's what I'm clinging to and I'm relying upon my youth for my ministry, I think that's going to be a really hard midlife crisis for me. The day that I, the day that I'm no longer podcasting, the day that I'm, I'm no longer walking into a bar and people are going, "Are you really a priest?" Like, yeah, come where I don't. I, I can look, see that. Like, yeah. yeah, you look like a priest. You're overweight. You're 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 you're, you've lost all <laughs> you're your, old. You're, you're all gray. You're old. Like that's just how all priests look. You know. So I think that. No offense to any priests yeah. out there who are old. <laughs> But, We're getting there, right? I, I, I'm getting there. I got gray in my beard. So, but there is. Certain, I think that's what it's going to be for me. Is that I don't get the human affirmation I used to get when I was young. The the human intrigue, like, tell me about what it's like to be a priest. What does it mean to be celibate? And when I'm old, there's be like, oh, this this old guy comes in here. He's a priest. And but there, there's not going to be the same intrigue. And I'm I'm probably in a human way clinging to that more than I should. Mm. Yeah, I see some of that. I guess with, I, I mean. I guess the way you present it is is interesting to me because um, on the one hand, it seems inevitable, yeah. and then on the other hand, it sounds like almost like a moral issue. Mm. If you were humble enough, right. then you yeah. won't go through this. Yeah. You know, It's almost like you could judge yourself for it, or I ought to be different, and, and, and then I wouldn't you know, like hit the wall or something. And I could see some of that. Like one, okay, one manifestation of this, and it seems very small and silly to me, but I'll confess it, is that I, I started feeling out of shape and slowing down like physically, yeah. and then I started going to the gym. And I noticed like last year, some of my ambitions were weightlifting. Okay. And I could just see it was just like vanity. Mm. It was I didn't have that same thing in the past. But it it kind of bothered me. Like do I look good? 
do people notice that? Yeah. I liked getting compliments of like, oh, you're too beautiful to be a priest. Okay, you know, right. you're right. hot, you're fun, you're charming. Right. Um, and then that goes away. Yeah. And it's like, well, I am kind of trying to hang on to that. On the one hand, I honestly think, well, it's responsible to take care of my health. And to feel out of shape is to feel more lethargic yeah, and to not right. be, you know, have the energy to do my ministry and to teach and all this stuff. So th- that's okay. Yeah. But then I feel guilty about the vanity of like, there's beauty in youth and there's, it's just nice to have people notice you. Right. And it's nice to have people feel special when they're around you because you're, you seem like an impressive person. And then... That's going away, and <laughs> I don't yeah. know. And, I, I don't and of course, it's... it's supposed to be okay. If I was like real humble and you know, just like detached, then whatever, I shouldn't be bothered by that. But maybe that's just part of life. And I, the I don't think. I don't think though that it's. I don't think the most the healthiest way to look at it is if if I was humble, I wouldn't think this way. I think the the more healthy way to look at it is this is an opportunity to learn humility. So. That like God guides us through our whole life. He gives us our entire life to learn these things. So it's I, I don't even know how to be humble when it comes to being ordinary, right? Mm. I think that's kind of what we both we're, we're going to be ordinary soon, you know. Mm. And so like yeah. I don't know how to do that. But but when I become ordinary to the wider world, then that's an opportunity to say now I need to learn humility and not be mad at myself for not having it yet, but rather say okay I'm ordinary now. Let me find what it means to rely upon Christ and not need the attention, not need the human stuff, because I, I use this as an opportunity to grow in, in that way and to become holy. When I when I really, I didn't even know what that meant because mm-hmm. I, I was a different person in a sense. I was the same person, but a different, different I mean, my brain worked differently, my body worked differently. So as, as those changes happen, as those transitions happen, we say, how do I now live humility in this way? Rather, humility probably even looked different before because it was saying, I get, I'm getting praised or intrigued or people want to hang out with me for the human reasons. And so what does humility look like in that reality now when I'm becoming ordinary and I'm having trouble engaging with the people the same way and I'm realizing like this happened to me. I, I For the first time probably two years ago, I, I celebrated a wedding and I got sat with the parents rather than the friends. Oh, yeah. I was like, that was a transition for me. Yeah. Like I was saying, I used to sit with the couple that I like the friends of the couple and now I'm considered like their parents age. Yeah. And that that was a that was like a midlife a bit of a midlife thing. It's like, okay, I need to accept this in humility, learn humility and, and want to sit with the parents and be acknowledged that I don't I don't need to try to be cool anymore. I don't want to do that because that would be just cringe. But um but like now I'm here and now I just need to accept this for what it is and thrive in that reality. I like that. It's just a new chapter and it offers new opportunities yeah. for humility and growth. It's a different kind of growth. But I like that, and I, I don't know. I mean, maybe part of the midlife thing is sort of deferred because I am very proud of the life that I've had so far and very satisfied. I mean, there's some like, you know, some stuff that everybody would have loved to have. I mean, travel the world, live in different places, meet a lot of cool people, um, achieve all kinds of things from you know being a respected person in society and having a, a, a job that people admire and. Um, the studies stuff, belonging to a community, all kinds of things. But really, the more important things, like I'm very proud to be a godfather and to be mm-hmm. watching my goddaughter and godson, you know, grow up, mm-hmm. and very proud to have fought some of the battles internally that I have, and um, to have kind of pushed through, and very proud of the graces that I look back on and the things that God has done for me, and very grateful for those things, and. So I don't really look at it like I haven't achieved enough. Because I'm like, I could die today and I'm, I'm proud. I'm Fine, there's going to be stuff that, like, I hope that I can do more stuff, you know. Um, so your humility is going to prevent, or your, your, your desire for greater humility is going to present a real, uh, pre- prevent a real crisis, midlife crisis. But I think also what you're saying is your thankfulness is because you actually want to look mm. back in thanksgiving about what you have. And so being able to say, I'm actually thankful for what our Lord has done in my life and therefore I'm content, but then also to say, but I'm also urgent in holiness. So I'm content about my life, but I don't want to be so content that I forget that I have a lot 
more to grow in. So therefore, I'm going to I'm going to proceed with an understanding of I want greater humility, but I also want contentment. And this paradox of of resting in God's plan, but also being urgent for greater holiness. And I think that's what you're saying, Mikey. Like, like you're you're saying I'm thankful for what I have, so therefore I don't want a lot because I see that God has already been good and I've received it well. Um, but I also then more opportunities that come for greater holiness is only going to be good where I could, I, I, I think that the day will come when I can actually say, God willing, that I could now retire to a monastery where I don't get, I'm around a bunch of dudes. You know, I, I, I'm yeah. around a bunch of old you're dudes. Num- who, you're a number. You're nobody. Right. It doesn't matter. And, and, and it's, it's a bunch of dudes who are, who are, who don't care. I get frustrated by me. And it's so much easier. I found like, especially moving to a new city two years ago, you meet all new people and they don't know me. So they, they, they're they're they love me and but they don't haven't seen my weakness they don't really love me they've only seen the the mask i put on when i'm meeting new people and then once the relationships grow and then they're like man yeah you yeah you're good at this but yeah you're you're a mess in this area and that's when true love comes along because they love you in the being a mess but i think when you're in a monastery they all know you're a mess and it's it's harder to be holy because because you're not trying to impress anybody you're not you're not putting on a mask anymore because that'd be so debilitating whereas we could put a mask on the world and social media and in our interactions and everything like that yeah and things just kind of slow down in terms of like what you can and can't do um i went to and i'll you brought it back to the monastery i love that um and I hope that didn't sound too arrogant when I'm saying I don't need anything more. I have a great, you know, I think just great gratitude to guy. Yeah, exactly. um, the, but the monastery. Okay, so I just went on retreat for five days at nice. uh, Snowmass, the okay. Benedictine Monastery at Snowmass. Nice. First of all, praise God, the most beautiful place in the world mm. and the most beautiful time because the colors are changing. The aspens are mm. just shining like gold and the mountains are glorious. This place is like a huge valley that just belongs to the monastery, wow. and it's like farms and open land. It's just an amazing place, and so quiet, so quiet, and it's out of range from any, you know, t- technology and all that stuff. So, great place to pray. It was cool to be at the monastery. These monks, there's about ten monks there, and they Benedictine life is pray and and work or at labora, and they. You can see there's there's a simplicity to that life. What are you trying to achieve? You don't do anything except pray and work. Right. Um, maybe you're proud of the cow that gets fat enough that you can <laughs> make money on its beef or whatever. But I guess I mean there's still fine. There's still opportunities for vices and virtue and things like. I suppose you could get obsessed with impressing the brothers there, or you know just obstinate and stubborn about your own way and all kinds of things that you find out that the stage is different but the reality the same drama exists in the human heart and it's played out and in a in a much more transparent way because you live only with 10 people and you're going to live there for decades you know and see each other day in and day out um so that life was um interesting to observe i'm always like a you know, people observer and just fascinated by that. I had once in spirituality, your first year of seminary, um, told my spiritual director, Father Drendel, um, I need to be a monk. I love this life, contemplative life. It's so simple. My mind and my personality is so chaotic that this would give me, this calm Mm -hmm. atmosphere seems very attractive to me. And I would like that. And, I think I should go be a monk. And Drendel just laughed at me. <laughs> he said, you're not a monk. Like, you're not a monk. It's not going to work. You know, of course it's attractive to you because it's the opposite, but you don't, you're not going to thrive as the opposite. You have to learn to be you. And, um, but there is something just very inviting to me about that super chill, quiet environment. Yeah. And you're such an, an, an extrovert. I don't know that that would be the place for you right now either. But... I don't know, you probably find some solace similarly of like not having to, I don't know, I can't, I can't speak for you because I'm not that kind of like constant extrovert. And you seem so comfortable with it. Whereas for me, a crowd, attention, all this stuff is just pressure. 
It's anxiety. It's all these things. Yeah, I, I, I have a new new restaurant I go to as often as I can in, in Sherman Oaks in Los Angeles, and I, and I walked in there one night with a friend, and there weren't even enough seats around the bar for us supposed to sit. So like, she sat down, and I just stood like at the bar. There was no chair, not enough chairs, and it was packed. Just people everywhere, and I was so focused. Like we had one of the greatest conversations about celibacy, about priesthood, about holiness. And, and I, I was so on point, like even the next day, she's like, that conversation was great. And I was like, it really was. And I think she's the same way. So both of us were on point being just craziness going on all, all around us. <laughs> but I, this is, this is what I thought about just the monastery zoned though. In. I think if, if God ever called me to retire to a monastery, to go to a monastery soon, I, I would say what I learned about from being a pastor what I learned about from being an extrovert and sanguine, phlegmatic, being out in the world, living in Los Angeles and Denver, what I learned is that I, how, how much I thrive on those conversations. And, and I think that what I would do, I'd obviously under the guidance of a spiritual director, I would say, now let me, let me have that with the saints. Like, let me have that with our Lord. Like, the, uh, the depth of conversation happens in silence in a monastery. So I'm good. The, the intense conversation that I had with, the person sitting next to me at the bar, I'm now going to have every single day with our Lord and go deep. And then I'm going to engage with the saints today. I'm going to engage with all the, the choirs of angels. I'm going to engage with the cloud of witnesses that are the saints. Mm. And I, I think if, if I had not had the experience of thriving in that situation, I would have gone to a monastery and not quite know what to do. Somebody says, oh, you need to engage with the holy saints. And I would have been like, I have no idea what that means. Like, yeah, right. But now I'm like, I know what that means. I, I could, I could have it could be these conversations in silence with our Lord, primarily, and then through Him to all the saints. And so I, He's kind of training me, just like when I dated. Like the 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 joy that came from dating has absolutely influenced my understanding of celibacy because I know what it's like to want intimacy and exclusivity with a person. Mm. I know what that's like because I had that for yeah. a while. So now I say, I want that same intimacy and exclusivity with you, oh Lord, because I, I know what it feels like to desire that and to, and to look forward to it and to thrive in it. And now I can take that experience and say, you put the same as a human being, now let me find that with you. That's beautiful. It had a lot to do with my retreat. <laughs> okay. But my retreat was almost like mourning. Like, all oh, those relationships were so sweet and so delightful. Like, why can't I find that in other, other places? But I love that perspective of I got a taste of how delightful, yeah. you know, the joy of friendship, the joy of love can be. And to seek that, to renew my seeking that in, in Christ and in the divine relationship and with the saints and such. That's a cool way to look at it. All right, so I only wanted to make one point about the monasteries. Okay. And we've talked a lot about the monastery already. It's cool. <laughs> but really, I just wanted to point out, today is the feast of uh, St. Teresa of Avila, mm -hmm. who was a reformer, and she reformed the church in large part by um, reforming monastic life mm. and just calling the religious and the Carmelites of her order to stay inside. Stay inside and seek God on the inside. Mm. Stay inside Beautiful. the convent, literally, of like, let's close the doors. Let's lock the doors. And it'll just be a life of seeking the Lord and a really simple life of internal prayer. Mm. And then um, in a, I mean, not like as a physical gate on the building, but she, her whole teaching as a doctor of the church, you know, like one of the great um, teachers of all of the Roman church, is about the interior castle. Mm. You go seek the Lord in all of the different places of your soul, and you'll find him. Mm. And you'll find different faces of God. You'll find different delight, delights in different places, the different treasures in different rooms. And that will change the world. She thought this will save the world. And she had one when she was a kid. She lived in Moorish Spain, and she thought, "How are like a lot of the saints? If like the great thing we could do is to go convert the world." And you remember Francis of Assisi wanted to run over to the Holy Land yeah. and convert the Moors. And Teresa was similar, but in both cases, Francis was more like a simple life of serving the poor and living with the poor in uh, Italy. But for uh, Teresa and her friend, John of the Cross, as well. It was, just seek the Lord on the inside. 
it's so simple and it seems so counterintuitive in terms of like you need to go out and tell people and that wasn't it. There was something about, and it wasn't even like intercede constantly for the world or for causes or try to spread the mission that way. Yes, the Carmelites have that focus of intercessory prayer, but she really was insisted on the, just the contemplation of God. Yeah. And one of my experiences at the, at the monastery up there in the mountains was I felt this deep gratitude for this stable, quiet, somewhat hidden place in the world mm. that just loves God and expresses the human love for God. And they just pray the Psalms every day. And that's like their mission is just to pray the Psalms. I don't even know if they're as like contemplative so much as they just work and then they pray out loud these Psalms. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of Jesus's simple call that we try to do with the the, the mass of do this in memory of me, remember me. And that's a big theme of the Old Testament. I'm teaching Old Testament and scriptures generally right now. And it's remember, yeah. just remember what God has done. And the Psalms are often about, you know, praise the Lord for rescuing us from Egypt. Praise the Lord for all creation, you know, mountains and hills, bless the Lord. Um, in lots of different ways, they're just saying, God is good. God is good. And that is just over and over and over and over throughout life. And I felt so grateful that there's a place like this. Life is so complicated. Society is so complicated. I'm a historian. I'm looking around and I say, parishes come and go. They rise and fall. Dioceses, whole countries, whole nations, empires come and go and come and go. And I just felt like the, the anchors, these little lighthouses were the monasteries that don't come and go. For some reason, they're just occupied with a few monks, mothers, you know, yeah. nuns, yeah. who are going to sit there and live the simple life of praising God, just telling God you are good. Yeah. And there will always be this echo of God, you are good in the world. And we, were, we will remember you. We will not forget, you know, let the whole world go crazy. Yeah. But... We will not forget that God is good and that Jesus reigns. You know, it was so so beautiful and so simple. And I thought, well, at first, you remember I was telling you that I thought I would like to go to the monastery because I think it would bring peace to my soul. It would yeah. be like the only place I could be content and yeah. calm. And this time it was like, no, I had an attraction to the monastery because I want the world to remember mm. Jesus. And in spite of all my efforts in the parish world, which I don't, I, I mean, I love this life and I'm glad I come back, you know, even more committed, but it's not the same as just the simple memory that's going to be held. You know, I spend a lot of time loving people who will not be stable, who will not be remembering people who are in love with Jesus one day and then hate him the next day and all kinds of, um, situations where, you know, very holy parents and then the kids don't practice anything. And so it's just a, a chaotic, unpredictable environment where there, the stability of the monastery to me was like just beautiful, a place where you can remember God and anybody could remember God. There were people who otherwise don't like religion who would come there and be really at peace with God. Yeah. And there were people who are confused about things and all kinds of things. And it wasn't to, to come and get the advice of the, the monks because they don't talk to anybody. Mm. It's silent. Mm. It was simply to just hear the Psalms and be in a quiet place. You know? well, one of the ways I think it, our, our, our generation, and by this I mean like the past couple hundred years, but like our, our generation has a really hard time. I mean, if you and I walked on the 16th Street Mall here in Denver and we tried to like explain to people why being a monk is a benefit to the whole world like they just would that would not get it. like what are they doing like what what are they actually doing to help like they need to be out serving the poor they need to be doing this and this and this like we don't our generation does not understand that but it's true and i think one of the things and i'm preaching to myself here one of the things that we have stopped doing in the church is that it used to be i'm i know in the byzantine church it was this way i'm guessing it was in the roman catholic church as well is that well let me start here 
Another thing that's really hard to understand for our generation is that um, at one point, those who were not initiated would be kicked out of the church service. They'd be kicked out of mass, kicked out of liturgy. Oh, that's right. And yeah. it feels to us like, like what, like we, what you think you're better than me? Like, why are you kicking me out? Like, like you're this, you're an elitist. You're separating me. You know, I, I, this makes me feel bad. It makes me feel abandoned. Like, like you can't do that. But in the early church, the reason they did that was for the sake of those they kicked out. Because you're you're going to say the creed, and you don't have the capacity to understand what it means to believe in the Trinity. You don't have the capacity to understand what it means to believe in baptism because that comes through the grace of baptism. So once you've received the gift of God mm. to understand these things, then you can understand it. So it can be a scandal to you and be more confusing to your journey of faith to see the deep mysteries of the faith lived out. I mean, a priest in the in the West holds up a piece of bread, what looks like a piece of bread, and says, the body of Christ. Like, if, if you don't have the capacity through baptism and the grace of God to understand that that is the body and blood sold the divinity of Christ, then that can be scandalous to you. you they're, bunch, they're crazy, you know? Yeah. So we kick people out for their own sakes to in order to say, you, you once you progress and become baptized, that's what we want. We want you to come back. We're kicking you out for the sake of you coming back in. And kicking out is just a bad way of saying it. But another thing that, that is really hard for us to understand is that in the early church, and in many of our Byzantine churches, they still do this. I'm still trying to figure out a way to do it um, in a way that, that explains it truly. But you would not have a mass or a liturgy said for someone who wasn't Catholic. Like, you wouldn't. You mm. couldn't. You, you wouldn't. Like, we have panahitas in the East. Like there are these prayer services for the dead that the whole parish sings. And, and the, the authentic tradition there is you do not have a panahita for someone who was not a practicing member of the church. Why not? Because when the church prays, it prays as the body of Christ. And so the effect of that prayer is within that body. Mm. So when I, when I pray within the body of Christ, I must pray publicly with the community, um, it makes sense that I'm the baby finger of the body of Christ, but, but if the baby finger is healthy, then so is the heart, so is the left hand, so is the left eye. And so the whole body works as one. So our prayer, our sacrifices work primarily within the body of Christ. So when someone comes up to me and says, hey, can you pray for my uncle? He just died. He just killed himself, whatever. And I, and I, like, I don't say, I don't know how to say this well. That's why I'm, I'm maybe looking for advice on this. I, do, I don't say, well, we can't pray for him because he wasn't a member of the body of Christ. He was excommunicated or wasn't baptized or whatever. Now, again, this might be scandalous to listeners. So you can pray for anybody personally because Jesus is Jesus. Like I just say, Lord, pray for them. But when you ask the church to pray for them, that that's where it gets a little bit more the church's role within the public action of the church is the body of Christ. We only have control and effect over as if we're praying as the body, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we're praying as the body of Christ, our authority for the effectiveness of prayer is within the body of Christ. Again, we can always privately or within our families pray for anybody mm. and work for anybody, but but I think what we've lost the sense of the monks and the nuns being the heart of the body of Christ mm. and of that prayer affecting the body of Christ because we, we are so individualistic. We're all, I can do whatever I want and it's it's me and, and in other words, when I pray for you, it's like I'm trying to convince God to love you more as if he doesn't. The, the effect mm. when I pray is within the body of Christ when I pray I tend to, it makes me kind of think of there's some like counseling principles that are admitting um you can't change other people. What you can do is do is, yeah. is do, change yourself. Yeah, and you can affect yourself. And if you take care of your, if you take care of yourself, and you like your own problems. You right. you recognize your own role. The healthier that you are, the more good that you are in to other people. But you you can't fix people. You can't change people. And yeah. part of the, it sounds to me like something like, um, hey, tell your God to fix these people. Right. And it's like, nah, that's maybe not our role right. is to fix people. Maybe our role is to be as healthy as we can and then be of service to everyone and love in the world. And But I do think yeah, yeah, your point is well taken. You can, you can pray privately. Um, and it's hard to, I, I even find it like we have to sort through the, the logic of it and, the, and kind of come to terms with that. But that's the thought I had to the analogy is just like, um, you can address things within the within the family and within right. yourself right. and the body of Christ is you know the self praying for itself and not trying to change the you know not trying to change the other but trying to be the best self um, 
Oh, what? I don't know. I just kind of flipped off. Oh, yeah, the, the monastery is the heart, or the monastery is the, you know, this, this engine of, uh, of prayer within. We're all knit together in the body of Christ, and so we need to understand that I don't need to be all things to all people because other members of the community, like we were saying, or in this case, so we, I rely upon the monks and the nuns who are praying for me to do my ministry. The ability that for, for me to go out and to love on the poor, or to love on the unchurched, which is my passions, when I go out there and do that, like it's not me doing it, it's Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit doing it through me. And, and I, I need the prayers of the monks and nuns, I rely, rely upon that to be a healthy part of the body of Christ. If I'm the mouth of the body of Christ you know, that, that, that's trying to speak to the world, um, I need the heart that you know, pumps the blood that allows me to function and to speak and you know, to use that image that Paul uses. So I, I think we need to thank God for the monks and the nuns. We need to pray for them because they're under attack probably even more than we are by the devil. But but we need to realize and be thankful for how much we rely upon them. And if we realize that we, they sustain us through their prayer, we wouldn't be demanding that they leave and go do something practical. Like anybody who says that, you do something practical. Like if you're, if you're complaining about them, you mm. do it because you're probably called to that, whereas they're called to empower you through prayer. And you have to understand and trust that the body of Christ is real, that we all have different roles and we all empower each other to understand what the beauty of not only monastic life is, but also what the beauty of of life in the world is the diocesan priesthood, et cetera. All right. Two questions. Um, one is, do you have any monasteries? Like, does your right, I know your right is very young in the States. Yeah. So I think there is something natural about monasteries come from age, you know, midlife crisis, yeah. and then the church develops her, her monasteries. Um, it's kind of a, a fruit of the church as well. Um, but then that piece, and then it, what is the anamnesis in your liturgy like? Or is it the whole thing? I mean, we have a very specific part. Right after the, um, the consecration, then you say the mystery of faith. We proclaim your death, O Lord. We profess your resurrection until you come. We are going to remember you until you come back. That's what we're doing. And then there's a prayer right afterward that is the formal anamnesis prayer, which is like we are celebrating your death, your resurrection, your ascension, and yeah. glorious you know, ascension into heaven. Um, and I think with that memory piece in the liturgy, it's almost like every Eucharistic community, every Mass, every parish that's formed by that communion, by that Mass, is in some way called to be like that monastery, like a monastery to itself, yeah. which is this hub of memory of God. Yeah. And um, so, in part, that should be the experience of every Christian, is the monastic experience, the contemplative experience. That's not for that nun, yeah. but also for me to, um, even if I'm not called to that you know, c- consecration of myself, I am called to imitate that in some respect, and the church everywhere, by nature of the sacrament that Jesus has given us, is a community that will remember, yeah. is the community that keeps the memory of God alive, yeah. or of Jesus alive. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 I need to spend more time thinking about exactly how those two things are tied together, because that's really beautiful. So thank you for... But do you have anamnesis in your... Oh, yeah. So... so so we to answer your first question, we do have monasteries. Mm. Um, we do not have as many as we need. It's the same thing. There's a vocations crisis across all Christian denominations. But we in the Byzantine Catholic Church are we 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 had more monasteries. But I think the problem was that is we forgot that that they were meant to be the heart. And so many of our monastics looked and acted the same as every other minister in the church. And so when you have when you have nuns for example, when you have nuns kind of forgetting that that we need nuns in the world that stay home, we need nuns that look different, sound different, that hone each other, that live in the monastery, that, that therefore become the heart of the body of Christ, even as they seek primarily their own salvation, they become the heart of the body of Christ. Many of our nuns, just like the Roman Catholic nuns, have left the monasteries. They're, mm. they're, they're, they're teaching and they're, they're doing all these things in the world. I mean, we have a bunch of nuns who are parish secretaries. It's like, you don't need to be a nun to be a parish secretary. Like, like 
be be a nun. Like again, in the in the West, especially, there's beautiful teaching orders and hospital orders, but but we need the contemplatives because they're the heart of the body of Christ. So we we lost a bunch of monastics in in the Byzantine Catholic Church in the U.S. Mm. because I think we forgot that they forgot we forgot that we needed that heart. And so they they left and they they started doing things that any other priest or any other mm. lay person did. And so that that vocation wasn't attractive anymore because it kind of forgot what its role was in the body yeah. of Christ. Um, but that's coming back. So and maybe to be to be fair, that there was something in the um, the best in the council in the best sense or the modern world that needs an out uh, like going out. Yeah. to the people. And so I think there is something yeah. of the Holy Spirit inspiring a, a missionary sense yeah. again. And you need you need both though. And I, but I, I, yeah, yeah, and I do think we things go overboard. Yeah. And I exactly. And so there there's all kinds of nuances here of, of course. And sorry I'm being a little bit dramatic probably, but um but I but it's because we don't have them anymore and that's a scandal. The fact that we don't have monasteries near almost every big city in the US, especially in the Eastern Church like that, that's a scandal. And we just we forgot who we were for a while. And so, I, I, anyway, it's intriguing what you said about tying in that to remembrance and anamnesis. And our anamnesis is the same thing. We, we remember, O oh Lord, the cross, the death, the, your cross, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, and your second coming. Mm-hmm. So we actually tie in the second coming of Christ okay. into that remembrance. Every single liturgy, we remember the second coming of Christ, which has not happened yet. Because, again, it's the opposite of dismember. Dismember means something's pulled apart. Remember means it's brought back oh, together cool. again. So th- there's very much a the whole the whole kingdom of God outside of space and time is now made present in the liturgy. It's remembered. It was dismembered. Now it's remembered in the liturgy. So when Jesus says, "Do this in remembrance of me," he's literally saying, "I will become, I will become whole in your head. I'll become present to you." in a way that I wasn't before you stepped out of space and time and sacred space and time for this reality. Um, so so they are, I think m- monks and nuns remember the heart, that they, uh, maybe even the brain, the, the memory itself is is what they are doing as, as the world moves on, you know, baby step by baby step and sometimes massive stride by massive stride. Um, they, it's like what the, we all know that the Irish monks were the ones who kind of kept all the fathers and they were the libraries of the, of the medieval world mm-hmm. when everything was being lost and burned and like th- those were the places and then when yeah, when christianity fell apart and disappeared in europe it was the monks yeah. that came and brought it back yeah. but very slowly just forming monasteries right so if you if you think you may have a vocation to monasticism like that that's on your mind at all like go get a good spiritual director and they might say like yours did mike like no that's not for you your your role is to teach is to form your role is to guide the world um but there are other people whose whose role who are not answering that call whose role is to become the heart of the body of christ in these monasteries and to, and to be be a place of of prayer and and we should not criticize them for not being effective. They are probably the most effective members of the body of Christ. It's just not obvious, which which very Chestertonian, which probably makes it more beautiful and good. The things that are not as obvious, not as practical, tend to be the things that are actually the best things. Um, the scriptures say, right? It, Jesus says, "Don't you know? Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and lend those without expecting repayment." Because even sinners lend those expecting mm. even sinners love those who love them so we're called to actually do things that are not practical that are not completely mm. reasonable we're called to be prodigal reckless mm. in our love like they're like the prodigal father right who's reckless in his love for the prodigal son who returns mm. there's a certain recklessness that we're called to have and the or monks, the impracticality maybe like exactly. something like the the ship you think of the ark as the church is the ark yeah. and the ship that um, that moves on the power, you know. Yeah. You think of powerful sailing ship or whatever, but then when there's a storm, what do you need? You need an anchor. Yeah, you need an anchor. And when things are moving, the anchor doesn't do anything. Right. <laughs> it's not really, but it's uh, it's not practical. Right. But then when there's, there's a storm, and I would say there's storms throughout history, and maybe right now we're yeah. facing a storm or yeah. in a storm, then the anchor is uh, going to keep everything safe and strong and everything. In my parish, I'm at the Proto-Cathedral of St. Mary in, in Sherman Oaks, California, and my predecessors did a really good job of creating a space, not only in the church, but outside of the church, that's like a garden. And mm. so that's, we have a shrine there, we have we have a pergola there, we have a fire pit there twice, two, two three times a week, and people that don't even aren't even Christian, they'll come walking in there and they'll go, 
the energy here is great. It's like yeah. in the middle of LA, it's a little garden that's a place of calm. Yeah. And then you get a fire pit going, you're chatting with people, and like, this is not like the typical world. Yeah, you, know? you get to step away. Yeah, we all have our phones. We don't bring our phones out. We don't have TVs around us. We're just talking about the transcendent. You know, we're trying to. It doesn't yeah. always happen that way, of course. Beautiful. All right. Well, I could talk to you forever. Uh, but unfortunately, I got to head up to yeah, Windsor, man. and you got to go to California. Yeah, <laughs> bring our love back. Um, it's hard to say. Yeah, like bring Christ back to the city of angels, man. That's a holy place. Wait, <laughs> it, 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 the potential is absolutely there. Yeah, I know. I love, and you're an eternal optimist. You just yeah. believe in people. It's beautiful. But as I've said before, like the this we call the city of angels, Los Angeles, but the full name is actually the Mother of God. Is it? Mother of God, Queen of Angels. Whoa. So, but it got short to Los Angeles. But Los Angeles, the, the angels, is only Our Lady of the Angels. Really? I so, never so knew that. So it's, it's Our Lady's city, you know, and it's the city of the angels as well. But the, so the, it's almost like France and Ireland, right? They've lost their faith, but they started by being the place where Our Lady was crowned and thrived and given her proper wow. dignity. So, yeah, pray for LA because she'll come back. Come she on. She will. And I, I, Nineveh, I see baby, it all the time. you're Jonah. Amen. They can. They changed in a day, you know. (laughs) Don't don't put that on us. But we're 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 trying. I I do a a a YouTube channel called Evangelize LA with a couple friends, and that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to like, what does it take to evangelize the city that we live in, you know? And then and then with what God is not our podcast, like Mother Mother Natalia is absolutely a a nun, right? She's a monastic, so she is the heart, and I'm the hands and the voice. And so we're trying through this podcast to to like to be effective with both these areas. And evangelize LA is is two lay guys and and two priests, a Roman Catholic, Byzantine Catholic, and two laymen that do a lot of evangelization in the world. And we're trying to process what this means for this city that we live in. Um, to start doing what our lady's will is and our Lord's will to, to change it. So Praise we'll God. Praise All right, us. give some shout-outs. Ooh, shout-outs. Um, I have met... I want to give a shout-out to all of the young adults of the Diocese of San Diego. I gave a retreat down there a couple weeks ago, and, and it's still... Although it's funny because... Um, when I do something like that and somebody walks up with a big smile on their face or holding a bottle of whiskey, I'm like... Where do you know me from? Is it like, is it mm. usually from Catholic stuff? Sometimes it's from when I was on Matt Frad. Sometimes it's from What God Is Not My New Podcast. But but I think a lot of them were, were, were Catholic stuff listeners. So so shout out to all the young adults in the Diocese of San Diego. Um, I also want to give a shout out to my, my parish. Um, as I said last time, my old parish here in Denver, my new parish in Los Angeles. Um, our parish has so much potential in Los Angeles. It is incredible. And to all the, to all the non-Catholics that have been coming, Julie... Um, this Julie, I met this girl I met on the street. She brings her little dog and she plays the harp professionally. And she comes and she loves our socials to, to Laura, who I love, who's also I met in a bar and she's been coming a little more, more frequently. Um, just the people that come just enjoy the, the space and the belonging that we offer. And, and all the faithful, my gosh, Mike, Mike Menia, Steve Petak, um, Jerome Parrott. Um, those have been in my parish forever. Mary Jo Komen. Um, all these people that were the foundation of that parish, and that now we're we're getting a lot of youth and zeal, and they've we I need to thank them every single day for hanging on for so long and giving our parish really what is its heart. And now we're kind of fleshing it out as time goes on through the power of our Lord. So yeah, shout out to all my all my LA peeps, San Diego peeps. Those that was like a songs. Grammy winning speech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just rattling off all these names that Amen. nobody Sorry else that. knows, but you really appreciate and everything. Well, they made this, <laughs> uh, just I don't. I want to shout out the, the monks at uh, Saint Benedict's Monastery. Obviously, they're not going to hear this. Praise God. <laughs> um, and Monsignor Hoffman, who is a diocesan priest who retired to the monastery, and he's a great example that way of just the the beauty of that life. And um, and then also to Brett Monero. This is kind of random, but it's on my mind. Um, it, he's newly working at the uh, the cathedral. He's a real nice guy. It's been fun to get to know him. He's a teacher. He teaches RCIA for us. He works at Catholic Charities. He tends a bar. And he is now doing um, a lot of our administrative work at the parish. So a real great guy. He's been a real like sincere and... Um, like dedicated Catholic for uh, so long. And I have one more. The reason I'm here is for my new niece, Rose, and she'll be baptized tomorrow. So 
Um, pray for little Rosie when this comes out. Of course, she'll be baptized. Um, but yeah, she's. I have not met her yet. I'll meet her tonight. And Beautiful. Baptized tomorrow. That's the best name ever. Okay, God bless you, everybody. Uh, welcome back. Olo, so good to see you. All right, Catholic stuff you should know. See you, folks.